Welcome to CII Podcasts. A very special welcome to this conversation with uh, Kevin Rudd. Mr. Rudd is the president and CEO of the Asia Society and a former Prime Minister of Australia. You've had vast experience in both implementing and forming policies for economic growth and development. Now, as the Prime Minister of Australia, of course, um, you led the country out of the global financial crisis. Um, and you're also, I know, uh, seen as one of the architects of the G20. Uh, the last few months have uh, have really been quite remarkable in changes in the world around us. Uh, we've seen uh, a remarkable economic recovery from uh, the pandemic. Uh, I think growth has bounced back faster than uh, any forecast. Um, and it's bounced back in a very uneven way. It's bounced back in a manner which has led to uh, great supply chain stresses uh, in different parts of the world as uh, in everything from semiconductors to shipping. Um, and at the same time, it's left, I think, some of the most disadvantaged um, still struggling with the effects of uh, losses in employment um, in the pandemic um, and also uh, the lack of recovery, the relative lack of recovery in high employment creating sectors um, like travel and tourism, which, uh, which are still sort of um, struggling to get back to some degree of normalcy. I'll make uh, three, uh, three thoughts though of, of areas where, which I think would be interesting to get into this morning. Um, first, uh, one of the things that's been striking as we've gone through this, this pandemic has been the relative absence um, of global leadership. Now, this was a conscious choice of the previous American president. Um, but even after the election of, uh, of, of Joe Biden, it doesn't seem like the US is trying to get back to playing its leadership role in the world that we had come to expect uh, at the time of global crises. And given that multilateral institutions get their heft, they get their credibility from um, powerful countries subscribing to their rules and following those rules. Um, this, this piece seems to be missing. Second, one of the responses to the pandemic has been a resurgent state. It's been a resurgence of government, uh, with governments the world round playing a much more significant and dominant role in the affairs of countries and people. Um, that response has been necessary, but it also has implications in the long run um, for everything from tax rates uh, to uh, uh, the weight of the state uh, on, uh, on individual actions and business um, to the impact potentially on long-run competitiveness of firms. And again, would love to hear your thoughts on how you see uh, the world evolving given this strong, potentially stronger role of the state um, going forward. And then third, um, we've all been watching what's been happening in Glasgow with COP26. Um, 
there's a renewed commitment to try to limit global warming warming to one and a half uh, degrees. Um, there, India made some important commitments in Glasgow. Uh, the first uh, uh, the first time that we've made commitments uh, to get to a zero carbon future. Um, and there are several, I think, positive moves. Um, but again, there's a real need for coordination, a real need for uh, a sense that we're all in this together and that we need to do each our own share in, um, in, in getting to our broader sustainability, meeting our broader sustainability objectives. So if I could request you, Kevin, to uh, speak to us with some introductory comments for a few minutes and then we will get into a discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. So on the core questions, however, which you pose, which are important questions, America looking in, looking out. Secondly, the return of the state. And thirdly, the future of climate. And frankly, within that, uh, the future of Mother India as well. So let me try and take a minute or two on each of those and let's open up our conversation. On America looking in, looking out, um, it uh, is a question of our glass being half full or half empty. Uh, I personally had a view that uh, the glass was starting to look fairly empty under President Trump, not simply because of his uh, unique political style, uh, but uh, on the question of its dual impact. One, uh, the fracturing of US domestic politics and causing the emergence and legitimization of a more isolationist America from traditionally the most internationalist of parties in the United States, namely the Republican Party. Um, and that I think was a, a structural danger for all of us who wish to see an activist America in the world. And secondly, um, the um, geopolitical and geoeconomic attitude of Trump's uh, nationalist isolationism towards traditional friends, partners and allies. Look at the threats of tariffs towards India, for example. Um, uh, and at the same time, uh, the legitimization of protectionism in the American body politic uh, in a Republican administration, which is traditionally the champions of free trade. So the fact that Trump is not there and the fact that there is uh, a more internationalist to Democrat administration under Biden puts the glass from being, as it were, half empty and significantly half empty, uh, a quarter empty in my view, or a quarter full, um, to one which started to look more like a, a glass two thirds full. Of course, uh, the legacy factors which uh, Biden has to now deal with uh, because of the Trump period in office are significant. A divided political system, the legitimization of protectionism, um, as well as um, a, um, uh, a new Republican questioning uh, of America's uh, role in the world from the far right of the Republican Party. And so Trump's, uh, sorry, Biden's response to the Trumpian challenge, but also to the China challenge, I believe, has been to double down on the rebuilding of American domestic economic strength. Uh, and if you look very carefully at the first year of the Biden administration, uh, it has uh, had as its central organizing principle, the passage of relevant uh, acts of the United States Congress, not just by way of economic stimulus, but most importantly, investment in the future drivers of American long-term economic growth. 
The jury is still out about how effective that will be, uh, but the, pr the primary emphasis in year one has been, frankly, uh, to begin to re rebuild the foundations of American national power. At the same time, as we all know, as friends and partners of the United States, America's uh, second priority has been the rebuilding of its um, alliances and strategic partnerships around the world. Uh, in our part of the world, of course, with Japan, uh, with South Korea, uh, with India, uh, with Southeast Asia. And in fact, the intensity of the diplomacy has been quite strong, uh, given the absence of presidential interest, frankly, in this part of the world. Uh, during the uh, period of the Trump administration. <clears throat> so on those two questions, I think we see a relatively activist US administration. Its Achilles heel has been its indifference on the economy, by which I mean not the domestic economy, but its indifference to the free trade economy around the world. The absence of America from uh, RCEP, the absence of America from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the absence of America in rebuilding the centrality of the World Trade Organization as the driving force uh, for global trade liberalization because it is overwhelmingly protectionist um, uh, American Congress, both Democrat and Republican. So that is the Achilles heel of American strategy. Its politics and its, its, uh, and its geopolitics, I think, are soundly thought out, but its weaknesses in geoeconomics in the center of which is trade and uh, this protectionist impulse. On the return of the state, uh, your second thesis, um, yes, it's true. Uh, partly it's natural and uh, unavoidable, uh, notwithstanding the impact of the neoliberal uh, economic agenda since uh, the rise of Thatcher and Reagan. Uh, for the last 40 years, you've seen a general retreat of the state and a general resurgence of the market. The consequence of which is there for all to see by and large, that growth levels around the world uh, have uh, been on the whole strong uh, through the um, uh, 80s, 90s and noughties uh, until, of course, we produced two great global dislocations. The first was the global financial crisis. That's when my own hair turned white because I happened to be an officer at the time. Many of my colleagues had their hair fall out. Mine just turned white. Um, in the, the largest uh, uh, economic downturn since the Great Depression. And then secondly, um, uh, less than a decade later, the global pandemic, um, and as a consequence, a further um, a global economic downturn, now the largest since the Depression. And so these have been enormous systemic assaults on the global, shall we say, public goods of global financial and economic management on the one hand, and global public health management on the other. And it is necessary, therefore, for the state to step up, to step in and to intervene. Uh, in order to hold the economy and to hold, shall we say, uh, public health together. Of course, the critical question mark, given the massive accumulation of global public sector debt as a result of this massive uh, intervention, and coming on the back of a previous massive intervention less than a decade before with the global financial crisis, is the extent to which through the International Monetary Fund and the G20, uh, we now have sufficient political resolve and policy roadmap to bring us back to a position of what I describe as overall fiscal, financial and economic balance um, once uh, the uh, engine drivers of recovery set in. The, re the temptation will be to keep the state at the forefront, 
uh, in fact their needs in terms of a vibrant economy in all of our countries, a better balance between market and the state than perhaps we currently have. Um, and if I could make a sidebar comment there, one of China's great dangers at the moment domestically is in fact for not only the global pandemic, but also the trade war with the United States, but also the statist and pro-party attitude of Xi Jinping to cause the balance between state and market in China to lurch back much more decisively in the direction of the party state and away from the market and principal private sector actors. And I believe to the long-term detriment of China's overall economic growth performance. And the final question you raised, which is climate, I would simply say this, that um, uh, the international community uh, welcomes uh, India's participation in Glasgow. Uh, I've been on the um, uh, other side of the, uh, the trenches uh, fighting uh, Indian bu uh, bureaucrats and political leaders on climate change uh, since the Copenhagen conference in 2009. So I know the centre of gravity in politics in India on this question and the reasons for it. I, I don't need to be reminded of them. I've had multiple lectures from many government ministers, prime ministers down about, uh, about all of that. So the script is well known. However, the other script is perhaps less known that unless we have uh, China and India on a trajectory towards uh, carbon neutrality, uh, then not only will it destroy uh, China's and India's environment and economies by centuries end, uh, because of unsustainable levels of global warming between three and four degrees centigrade, uh, but it will also fundamentally undermine uh, global uh, environmental commons and global economic growth as well. So therefore, it's essential for these two large um, economies to, uh, to come within the global consensus on this. I noticed carefully what Prime Minister Modi said about um, his conditionality for India's um, carbon neutrality soft pledge of 2070, which was uh, India would need a trillion dollar uh, international investment fund to engineer the energy transformation, which is necessary. Now, here's my wild guess, by the way, my wild prediction. Don't be surprised if the international community rises to that challenge, um, together with uh, the resources of the Indian government itself, because we do not, none of us, wish to get to a stage, say, by the 2040s, where through a combination of technology and capital, uh, the Chinese are on track towards carbon neutrality, but India is not. And India, in turn, becomes the world's largest emitter. And under those circumstances in the future, uh, that we didn't have a capacity to engineer the transformation in the Indian energy sector and the broader Indian economy. So I'm, um, uh, whereas many in India would have said, uh, Prime Minister Modi's promise of carbon neutrality 2070, put a trillion dollars on the table, was basically uh, kissing it all goodbye. Um, I actually have a different view. I think the India has entered the public policy space I think the international investment community is frankly awash with cash looking for somewhere to go. Uh, and if we can devise the at scale uh, energy, uh, renewable energy transformation projects in India, don't be surprised if we actually start to make much more rapid progress on this than some of the cynics would suggest. I'll leave my comments there. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you for, uh, as uh, as as always, giving us, uh, I think, a perspective that was both uh, insightful, 
comprehensive and at the same time very precise. So thank you. Uh, you know, I, I I want to come back to uh, to each of those uh, those those topics and if we could delve into them somewhat more deeply. Uh, I thought I thought your comment on the U.S. and it's uh, that that where where we've seen substantial progress in filling the glass uh, under President Biden um, were very insightful and exactly on on, on track. And um, there is indeed this protectionist impulse, this protectionist almost genie that's been left let out now. Um, which seems to be unfortunately cross-party. Um, and how do you see that? Is there any prospect of that correcting uh, going forward? Um, you know, uh, uh, we were having a discussion the other day and um, we were talking about um, India and the US um, and its participation in free trade arrangements in Asia. Uh, you know, India, as you know, dropped out of RCEP. Um, some of us think it was a mistake. Um, many think it was done for all the right reasons. Uh, there was, of course, this issue of China and China's involvement in RCEP, uh, which was a very big factor in, in that call. But there were also there's also the prospect of joining CPTPP, which uh, uh, China and Taiwan and I think the UK have now applied to join. Um, uh, and there's a thought that maybe the US and India should jointly apply to join. Um, now, domestic politics in both India and the, U in the US, um, I mean, in, the, in India, it's not talked about at all uh, yet, um, but maybe we need to start getting a dialogue going around it. Um, and getting people thinking about what would be involved uh, in joining such a trade pact because it involves much more than trade as, 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 as you well know. Um, and in the US, um, you know, the, the uh, Biden administration, I mean, I think in the run-up to the election as well, uh, President Biden said that the US would not join. So, you know, do you see do you see any prospect of this protectionist impulse in the US turning around um, because it's so important for the world to to fix what's going on at the WTO not just ignore it uh, to uh, uh, to to try to get uh, trade discussions moving uh, in many in many areas you know, and it seems like the U.S. is kind of a holdout at present, um, you know, relative to many other parts, most other parts of the world, including including India, including China, including many other countries. But the U.S. seems to be um, the big the big holdout on a greater uh, trade engagement. I think um, I'm one of those rare breeds of people who is a free trading social democrat. That's me. So I'm from the centre-left, I'm the equivalent, I suppose, of elements of the Congress Party uh, in the Indian political spectrum. Um, uh, but uh, we in the Australian Labour Party went through an intellectual and policy transformation about 20 to 30 years ago. And there was a core reason for it. Um, it was not a fad. We became convinced 
that free trade was best for poor working families uh, because it generated more jobs and it resulted in cheaper goods for poor and working people um, as opposed to subsidised um, uh, industrial arrangements. Um, a small example, as a child growing up in Australia, the shirt that I'm wearing at the moment, manufactured wholly in Australia, uh, would have probably cost about $15 um, in about 1970. I could buy a similar shirt today at the shop up the corner here, similar quality for about $20, $25, and that's in nominal dollar terms today, not in real dollar comparisons. And so if you're a working family where you've got disposable income which is fixed, uh, these are big, uh, big opportunities to improve your standard of living. So that's where I come from philosophically and for those reasons. I also believe that uh, when you have, however, in uh, free trade, there will be inevitable industrial uh, restructuring. Um, it doesn't mean you can continue to protect your domestic industries the way in which you did. And as a consequence, you can either throw everyone uh, into the fire or you can restructure those industries with appropriate adjustment payments to businesses and firms and to workers to retrain them out and into the industries of tomorrow. Um, and that's through appropriate social adjustment payments. If you do it that way, you're, you're less likely to engender the sort of political reaction we've had in the United States, where the old Rust Belt states, the old Steel Belt states, became the Rust Belt states, became the Trump states, and became the protectionist states. So we need to be very mindful of, I think, the uh, political economy of this question, uh, given that the ultimate economic question, I think, is fairly clear that freer trade is better for working people, whatever the country, and so long as it's attached to a strategy of structural adjustment where government has uh, a supporting role. In the United States, what will turn this around? I think one thing can turn it around, and that is the uh, unfolding risk of inflation. And the unrolling, unfolding risk of inflation, which is in part induced by the uh, supply chain crisis, in part induced by the trade wars between China and the United States, well before the pandemic hit, then turbocharged by the pandemic, and then legitimized by protectionism being good. Look at the, uh, the idiots in the United Kingdom who ran the Brexit argument. Um, and look at the comparable idiots in the United States who ran the America First argument, none of whom could ever answer honestly to working people how their material circumstances were going to improve as a result of all this. So now working families in America are facing uh, inflationary challenges uh, for the first time in 30 years in terms of the cost of basic goods and services. Now in part, that's a direct product of protectionism uh, and in part, uh, the only way it can be dealt with is to reduce protectionism. Hence why there's now an emerging debate in the United States about the wisdom of sustaining the current uh, mega tariffs imposed on the Chinese uh, by, the, uh, by, the, uh, by the Americans at the beginning of the trade war. So this could be uh, the foundational, as it were, elements of a turn to a more liberal trade agenda if it had to be driven out of Walmart uh, rather than out of Washington, uh, in my own judgment. Finally, um, in terms of the, um, the uh, mega politics of it, um, you speculated before about um, the possibility of a combined Indian-American application to TPP. Um, look, I understand uh, the difficult politics of all of that. 
uh, in both capitals. But you know something? Uh, here we have a Marxist-Leninist state, the Chinese, which has outflanked both of you um, mm. by going from high levels of protectionism and industrial support to now presenting an application to the uh, to the 11 TPP states, including Australia, for membership and not seeking an amendment to the original um, uh, terms of agreement. So the ability of the Chinese Marxist-Leninist system to, as it were, turn rapidly, tactically and politically uh, in this direction, I think is uh, formidable. Um, and then it becomes a question of enormous pressure on countries like Australia, Japan and the ROK. Um, um, and, or should I say the TPP member states, uh, including Vietnam, as to whether they would accept such a thing. So I'm, my appeal to our friends in Delhi, as it is to our friends in Washington, is don't let short-term economic adjustment stand in the way of long-term strategic economic advantage, which comes from being a member of this uh, enormous uh, economic and trading and investment entity called uh, the Indo-Pacific region of the 21st century. And for India, if I could be gratuitous and offer some uh, un unsolicited advice to all my friends in the Indian cabinet, I have quite a number, is look, I really do get the politics. I'm a politician, right? Um, I get it. But you know something? Graduating it up from step one, join APEC. Step two, join up join RCEP. Step three, uh, start your conditional negotiations with the TPP states. Do so with the Americans, because if you sold to the Indian body politic proposition, which said uh, India has now got full access to the American domestic market. Um, and of course, uh, the Americans then look to India as this huge new growth market, as opposed to being permanently uh, under the um, spell that it's either China or bust in terms of its own future uh, economic um, uh, opportunities. So I do think, to paraphrase a term from the Chinese, it could be win-win for America and India. Thank you, Kevin. I think that's a very powerful argument and one that uh, uh, we must try to give as much visibility to uh, in, uh, in India. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I thought the comment that you made about um, that was the shift took place in Australia, uh, that free trade is good for working people and that this was a shift that took place within the Labour Party. Um, mm. you know, and, but that must have depended on people like you in the party to help make that shift. And the same thing happened in India, you know, with mm. uh, it, the shift to free trade is good for the average Indian um, mm. was a shift that took place within the Congress party uh, with uh, Narasimha Rao and Manmohan Singh. Um, it was the same shift that took place in New Zealand, I guess, with David Lange and the Labour Party again. Um, and um, so in a sense, maybe we should look to President Biden making that same shift happen or a successor in the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican Party, you know, uh, that let the shift happen. Um, the only the challenge, I suppose, is that um, is that the Republican Party seems to have uh, have like the conservatives in Britain seem to have become 
uh, the party that appeals to the working class in a sense, um, at least a certain element there. It's uh, I saying I recently, have any yeah. thoughts on how that how that would be managed in a way. Well, in the domestic political economy of this, um, it is always difficult. Um, but most of the things that are worthwhile doing in politics and economics are always difficult. Yeah. And they remain difficult for a few years. And then everyone says, well, why didn't we do it much earlier? Um, and then it becomes one of these self-evident truths until you have some demagogue walk in either from the far left or the far right saying uh, a pox on all your houses. And, uh, and I find it difficult to forgive, for example, uh, Boris John Johnson's uh, uh, populist uh, right-wing nationalism in a, an effective coalition with uh, Nigel uh, Farage uh, from UKIP uh, to, to trumpet the mirage, the illusion uh, that somehow a protectionist Britain um, freed from Europe uh, would somehow be a stronger Britain for working families. Instead, it's a political script uh, based around crude impulses of nationalism and ethno-nationalism and English nationalism, um, uh, dressed up as some sort of uh, economic philosophy. It's not, it's just populist um, uh, politics and uh, ethno-nationalism. And the problem with populist politics and ethno-nationalism is that for working people, ultimately, it does not work. They end up with less jobs and higher prices, and that is not good for working people. So, at the end of the day, uh, you need the rows of the Mama Hun Singhs of this world uh, to say um, there is a different pathway forward, um, and uh, and uh, we intend to navigate that. I think it's equally possible for both Congress and, frankly, for the BJP in India to begin to construct the politics of this around a bold vision for India's uh, economic future, one which would rival China. Uh, 20 years ago, when we had the debates about China and India, these were seen as alternative nouns within the same phrase about rising Asia. And we know what's happened in the last 20 years. Um, that need not be the case for the next 20. It really need not, because in China now, we have the return of the state. Uh, and the return of its own protectionist impulses through a Chinese national strategy of national self-reliance uh, under Xi Jinping. There is therefore a strategic opportunity for India now as China turns left on its economics, turns towards the party state, for India now to discover the market and to embrace it. Um, it's a difficult political economy process but, and I know in the business of active day-to-day, hand-to-hand political combat, it's quite hard. I understand that. But my experience of um, voting people in all of our robust democracies is that the voters um, are not stupid. Uh, the voters actually understand um, if the argument is put clearly to them about how the cake can be grown uh, with bigger slices for everybody even if they are, they are unequal slices, as opposed to a smaller cake uh, with um, perhaps more equal slices of a smaller cake. And I think that's the essential dilemma we face. Um, hard, but doable. So I, I wanted to pursue that, uh, that, that, you know, your comments on the return of the state in China, because it does seem like 
you know the found you know china's had this incredible this incredible run for 40 years um you know in in 1980 china and india were both the same per capita gdp the same gdp overall today china is five times india's gdp five times india india's per capita gdp china's manufacturing sector today is eight times india's china's r&d spending today is 20 times india's i mean these are you know dramatic differences that uh, are a reflection uh, of china's tremendous success at a time when india has also been doing better uh, so it's uh, it's a huge gap but i think there's still this this opportunity and um it seems like it seems i mean i, I don't know if it's a uh, it seems like china's stumbling today you know that there's a certain degree of um uh questioning of uh of the role of business there's an attack on uh attack on large business an attack on the tech uh the tech giants um mm-hmm. there are uh it seems like there are uh you know th- this this whole zero covid policy of of china's where uh you know it's it, one wonders how they're going to get out of it um and there seems to be strong commitments that have been made uh, publicly which would make it difficult for the leadership in china to walk away now from a zero covid policy so um you know do you see do you see if you had to make a forecast for china over the next 20 years um do you see do you see a much less positive future i think uh, on balance xi jinping's current uh political economy uh settings will slow china's growth rate more than would naturally occur mm. um and there are several reasons for it one is the aggregate position of uh, his determination to preserve the power of the party and so as a consequence at a level of macroeconomic policy settings the party increasingly is supplanted even the technocratic class uh, within the state apparatus in the setting of china's overall uh policy course on the economy if we cast our mind back to jiang zemin and zhu rongji the division of labor between what the party did uh on politics and what the state did on the economy was relatively clear uh and zhu rongji was uh, given uh, i won't say carte blanche but near carte blanche uh to um uh begin to reform the state and enterprise sector um and to engineer another uh raft of basic reforms around um, set prices uh, in the economy effectively to destroy all price fixing and price setting in the economy by the planning apparatus um and uh, to decrease the overall sector of gdp being driven out of the soe sector that's no longer the case um the party is back with a vengeance mm-hmm. it's important for our indian audience to understand there's a double whammy here the party is back against the state and the party state is is back against the private sector so uh and on the private sector the argument is about uh, private sector monopoly mind you there's no parallel argument deployed by the chinese about their continued state sector monopolies mm. uh, 
So that is, in my judgment, an argument of convenience. The real concern on the part of China's party state is about the power of the Chinese private sector. Um, as uh, 60% of GDP, uh, the bulk of taxation revenue, the bulk of innovation, the bulk of uh, new employment generation, etc. And as a consequence, the corporate leaders of uh, the Chinese uh, private sector becoming alternative authority figures within the country. That's the ultimate politics driving this. Then there's a second set of um, shifts to what I describe as the left in Chinese uh, economic policy, uh, which is uh, around uh, the uh, question uh, of uh, income distribution uh, and the Chinese common prosperity agenda of the last 12 months and, and thinly veiled statements uh, to the private sector that the historical levels of income inequality are no longer sustainable within a Marxist state. Um, that also is having a palpable effect. A third shift to the left has been what, the, what Xi Jinping calls the mixed economy model. That's code language for if you're a successful private firm, an SOE could well take equity in your firm. Um, and if you're a failing public sector firm, then a successful private sector firm may be directed to take equity in that uh, public sector firm. Finally, um, we now have the role of party secretaries and party committees within private firms and their management structures. You put all that together and you're a CEO of a middle cap Chinese firm in Hangzhou. Suddenly, you've got a whole bunch of stuff you have to deal with to manage the politics of being in business than you ever had to deal with before. Now, if you're an average Mr. Wang, uh, running um, such an enterprise in Hangzhou, market cap say of you know a billion US dollars. Yeah, not a mega firm, but a big firm, and you've got you know um, several hundred staff, maybe several thousand staff. Um, then you begin to ask yourself the question: Am I going to continue to invest in my company's future, or am I going to put the money under a mattress? Or am I going to try to get my money out of the country and do other things with it? And so the animal spirits, as Maynard Keynes reminded us, are a, an interesting beast to observe. And so when you disturb the animal spirits so fundamentally as Xi Jinping has disturbed them, I begin to question, therefore, as to where China's growth rate will actually land. And if the Chinese state's efforts to sustain, say, a growth rate of five, can only be achieved with continuing large levels of fiscal stimulus or monetary policy stimulus or China's own form of quantitative easing. Then, as we know, that can generate uh, financial crises uh, over time because of high levels of indebtedness, particularly from state-owned banks uh, and state-owned banks supporting SOEs, sustaining growth levels, which are not sustainable by normal market conditions. So for those reasons, um, my argument uh, to our friends in India was be careful in your analysis, look carefully at what's unfolding in China, and, um, and if India is to be given a second big chance at this, that time is now. Um, I'm not sure it will repeat itself, um, uh, but I think the opportunity is there for uh, India to look beyond the retail politics of the next 12 months which are always hard in any country, and look to the uh, medium-term economic yield, and then the long-term uh, political benefit. 
Thank you. I think that's a very, very wise advice. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I just as, as, as I think we're just about out of time, but I, I have to ask you one follow on last question, which is, can you take further what you would like to see? What do you think India should do uh, to really take advantage of, uh, uh, of this opportunity? You know, given that, and I think your message on, you know, APEC, RCEP, CPTPP, uh, as a sequence from a, an international trade perspective and an international orientation is very powerful. Uh, what should we do at home? What should we do uh, economically? Uh, please be please be gratuitous in your advice. <laughs> yeah, I try not to be because I, I have many friends in India. Um, it's not an easy country to govern. Um, I know the history. Um, and, um, and I have great respect for the, um, you know, the intelligence and the sophistication of the, uh, the Indian civil service. Um, but here would be my simple suggestion. Um, the CII, the Confederation of Indian Industry, I would um, go and see Mr. Modi and I would go and see uh, the Commerce Minister um, and simply with the simple proposition, the time has come to join APEC. Remember, APEC does not require India to do anything. It is a free association of open economies where you have um, large um, rolling uh, technical discussions uh, about trade facilitation and about uh, free trading arrangements if you politically choose to go in that direction. In other words, it empowers the civil service to think differently about its role um, in, as it were, the macro management of the economy rather than the micro control of the economy. And most of these economies in the APEC community have been along the same journey uh, in one form or another. So no one's going to be terribly superior about it because we've all been there and been through it and it's always hard. But, the, but my advice in terms of starting there uh, is the Commerce Minister and the Prime Minister in your system would be enormously advantaged by a combined position from CII saying, this is the first step forward. Secondly, it costs you nothing in terms of an immediate set of policy actions. Thirdly, it sends a powerful signal to every other economy in Asia that India is coming back. And then the other steps uh, should be taken one by one. Kevin, thank you very much for your uh, for your comments for this discussion this morning. Thank you for your insight on, uh, on the US, uh, on China, uh, on what that means as a mirror for us to look at uh, in India, to see what we should be doing in our own interest and what's in our own long-term interest. And I think uh, I, I can't phrase it as brilliantly as you did, um, but something along the lines that you said of, you know, don't let our don't let our short term uh, our short term economic priorities deter us from our long term objectives and path. And I think uh, uh, I think that that wise advice is is something we should all take to heart. So thank you again for uh, the input that you've provided uh, and for being such a great guide to understanding the world around us. Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.